Thank you for joining us uh, for Conversations with Trust Experts. We're thrilled to have Marty Shankman and Jonathan Mocker with us today. And we're talking about planning for single people. Uh, for me, this is a really personal topic because as a single person, it's always interesting to see how much estate planning advice there is out there for people with families, people with spouses, but there isn't really anything out there for people who don't necessarily have a descendant to leave any assets to and don't necessarily have a plan for what to do after um, they've retired. And so this is to me a great topic and I'm excited to turn it over to Jonathan. Well, thank you very much, Barbara. Uh, this is a very, very interesting topic. As Barbara said, single people are different. I mean, there are tremendous differences in the tax law, but there are also tremendous differences in state law, depending upon whether or not you're married. And one of the things that I've noticed is regardless of the age or station in life or wealth, individuals who are not married, especially if they do not have any descendant, are much more difficult to get them to do planning than someone who is married and or has descendants. Uh, you know, I think a lot of them start, well, I'm single, my life isn't gonna be changed, so why do I have to do this planning? Well, let's talk about some of that. Um, by the way, Marty, uh, are there a lot of people in the United States who are not married? I actually don't remember the statistic offhand, but it's, it's, it's a tremendous number of people. And um, I think one of the problems professionally is that we, we all tend to default as planners to talking about family units. And, and you know, historically, um, the majority of clients may have been from married intact families. Uh, I think in the current time, the number of married intact families is probably less than 20% of the population. It's not, not nearly as significant as it's unfortunately made out to be in terms of planning discussions. So, so addressing non-traditional family units, uh, which certainly includes single people is absolutely essential. And I think Jonathan, one of, one of the points that uh, Barbara, you mentioned, um, I just wanna emphasize, it, it, one of the most important parts of planning for single individuals, especially as they get uh, older, is what happens if they get sick. It's not merely about tax planning or about wills. It's about practical steps to make sure that they have a safety net in place should they become ill or incapacitated. Uh, the, the default of a spouse being able to sign is not there. If they don't have children, that default is not there. We have to make sure that the single client has the right safety net in place. And that's not technical, so it's not um, uh, complex to deal with in terms of legalities, but it's really vital. That's absolutely correct. Um, and it's something like half of the people in the United States as adults are not uh, married. And in fact, as Marty said, the traditional uh, Cleaver family from Leave It in, uh, to Beaver is probably only about 20% of couples in the United States. There are a tremendous number of blended families or people who have never married. Keep in mind that even if you have someone who's married, unless there's a simultaneous death, one of them is gonna be single uh, by the time that they are old and are going to die. So that, that's, that's a great point, Jonathan. And I think demographically, one of the fastest growing segments of our population is single women age 85 and over. Uh, many may be single their whole lives. Many may have lost a spouse or partner. 
but that that's a significant issue um, to deal with in terms of planning. How do we protect those people? You've got to keep in mind that if you are married, your spouse owes you certain benefits such as support. And also you owe rights to your spouse, which don't apply as a general rule with respect to anybody else. There have been attempts, um, you know, the famous Marvin v. Marvin case of trying to get some sort palimony. of claim to, yeah, to palimony. And, and that's pretty much not been successful in the United States. It may be. Also keep in mind that I think there are still either uh, 13 states or 12 states that still have common law marriage. Common law marriage is where a man and woman, at least, live together, and they declare to each other that uh, I'm your spouse, and the other one says, I'm your spouse. And there are cases which have upheld that, even for tax purposes, but it's kind of risky to rely on that. Um, also keep in mind that your responsibility continues even when you die, because in virtually all states, whether you're a community property state or a non-community property state, the spouse will be entitled to a portion of the assets that are titled in the name of the deceased spouse unless there was a prenuptial agreement or unless they live in Georgia. Georgia has no minimum or elective share for a spouse. So if you wanna leave your spouse nothing, move to Georgia. Um, I've never known anyone who's done that, although I have mentioned it from time to time to others. Um, but those are rights. Also keep in mind that if you get divorced, uh, you're going to owe a continuing obligation to support to your spouse, again, unless there has been a prenuptial agreement of some kind that's enforced. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things, let's talk about, Marty, let's talk about some common estate planning goals and then kind of tie it into single people. Like Marty, do you have to protect yourself from disability? Do you have to worry about that if you're single? Absolutely, but let me let me segue from your prior comments, which were very good. A lot of single people don't realize that if they have a relationship, a partner, that they really should meet with a a family attorney and put together a living together agreement to address rights and obligations. And, you know, it's pretty common knowledge, I would think, that if you're going to get married, you should at least think about a prenup. I don't know what percentage of people actually do it, but it's certainly common knowledge to do it. I don't think it's as common knowledge that if you have a significant other and you're single and you're not marrying and don't plan on marrying, that you should have a, a, a living together agreement. And that could address a whole range of things. To segue to Jonathan's comment, which I think is vital in terms of planning if you get sick, um, you know, your, your spouse would probably automatically have a right to visit you in the hospital if you're, if you're ill. Would a, would a uh, significant other have that right? How do you demonstrate the niche, the nature of that relationship? So thinking of an agreement is something that's very important. Jonathan commented um, uh, about the uh, spousal right of election and some of the other rights. There's a whole battery of rights that are uh, available to married couples that single people cannot avail themselves of. So the, the only way to protect yourself and make sure that what your wishes are, are carried out is, is to provide uh, for an agreement that addresses those. And um, that's quite important. In terms of, of providing for care um, and, and, and addressing issues of disability, it's vitally important for a single person to, to address that. Let, let's take you know, probably the most commonly thought of uh, a cohort or segment, which is uh, people that are on in years. 
you know, the, the statistics show that as you get elder, you know, get on in years that um, the, the statistical likelihood of having a chronic disease and frankly, two or more chronic diseases grows very significantly. So people that are, are single that are in their 70s and 80s and, 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 and 90s and beyond, they really need to take precautions to make sure that they have in place all the documentation that's necessary. Well, we all know the documentation. It's common for estate planners, you know, a HIPAA release, a, a living will, a health proxy, uh, perhaps a, a pulsed uh, physician order for life-sustaining treatment, um, you know, if somebody's terminal. But, but the harder questions become, <clears throat> Who is it that you name in that document? Um, for the the Cleaver family, which Jonathan, you know, pointed out is probably less than twenty percent of the population, uh, you would name spouse and children, and those are the you know the natural uh, sort of culprits that are named. But for a single person, if you don't have a, a, a partner when you don't have children, who are you going to name? And if you don't take the formalities to do it, how is anyone going to know? who you want to make those decisions. So it's, it's quite important. When it comes to financial matters, it becomes even dicier. So I, I've seen situations where isolated elderly individuals would name a neighbor or uh, on a power of attorney. How secure is that? What is the relationship with the neighbor? So for, for many older people or people with health challenges that are single, I think it's even more important to create, for example, a fully funded revocable trust and look at naming an institutional trustee um, uh, or perhaps a, 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 a um, group of individuals so you have some checks and balances. Uh, you know, if you're going to name an individual as successor trustee, name an independent trust protector and make sure that they're on the stick to monitor it because you don't want somebody that does not have a close blood relationship that may not have the, the client's best interest at heart to have access to their finances. Jonathan? Yeah, let, let me mention, we're going to turn momentarily to some tax matters, but we'll cover those in details in the upcoming uh, webinar that Marty and I are going to do for PEAK and for Interactive Legal, which Barbara will set up, which I think will be very worthwhile listening to. But the tax law in some ways very much favors married people, but it also provides some disfavorable things. For example, if you're married, you might say, well, now I can file a joint return. I'm going to pay lower income tax. That's not true if the spouses make about the same amount of money. There is a marriage tax. And in fact, there was a time when people would try to get married just before the end of the year and then remarry right after the beginning of the year so they could mm -hmm. take the position that they were single at the end of the year so they could reduce their income taxes. And they would try to get a quickie divorce in some island down in the Caribbean or something. Uh, it didn't work out very well, at least in the Fourth Circuit, which said, nah, you weren't really divorced for tax purposes. So that's something to look at. But there's a lot more to marriage than just deciding how much extra income tax you're going to pay or not. Also, we know that if your spouse is a U.S. citizen, at least you have an unlimited marital deduction. And one of the beauties of that is that when the first spouse dies, uh, all of his or her assets, even if left to the spouse, so there's no estate tax whatsoever, there's an income tax-free step-up in basis under current law. Of course, there are proposals now that would change that, but that is an advantage. And we're going to talk about how that can even benefit children in, in a big way. But keep in mind, to get the full marital deduction, you have to be a, your spouse has to be a U.S. citizen. Um, and, Jonathan, uh, 
Yeah. I think it's worth just, you, you, you mentioned it really quick, but let me just um, uh, emphasize it uh, uh, for a second longer. Um, under some of the proposals that uh, uh, Senator Van Hollen and President Biden have made with de uh, creating deemed realization events. So uh, if you make a gift of an asset, we could trigger gain uh, on your death. Um, the uh, appreci unrealized appreciation could be taxed. It's possible, we don't know at this juncture, that uh, President Biden's proposal that uh, if your income, adjusted gross income exceeds a million dollars, that uh, you would pay capital gains tax at ordinary income rates, 40% plus. So what could possibly occur if these changes go through is on a transfer to a, a, a person by gift or on death, you could face a 40% potentially capital gains tax. And there's an exception provided in the, in the proposals for is, uh, just similar to what, what's in the estate tax arena, an unlimited amount for a US citizen spouse. So, you know, just like we've had in the estate planning arena, the, 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 the sort of pressure to marry to avoid a tax on transfer death that could be compounded by these deemed realization events that are being proposed because they too, uh, you could say they favor uh, married US citizen couples. They in effect disfavor, uh, which is quite unfair given the statistics of how many people choose to live together not married. They significantly disfavor or harm single people. There's been a lot, Marty, and you've been a leader in this, of spousal lifetime access trusts or SLATs, where uh, I would create a trust for my wife using my gift tax exemption, and she would create a trust for me, and we would try to make those so they don't fall under the reciprocal trust doctrines. We would make them sufficiently different uh, in order to avoid that. Now you can do that even if you're single. So if you are living with someone uh, as husband and wife uh, or as two husbands or two wives, whatever, you could create a, a trust for your uh, a significant other and your significant other could create a trust for you. Now there is a potential advantage here if you're single. It's easy to make that trust not a grantor trust if the beneficiary is not your spouse. It's very difficult under section 677 to make that trust a non-grantor trust if it's for your spouse. Also keep in mind that if you create a trust for your spouse, um, then even if it hasn't qualified for the marital deduction, you said, nope, it's not gonna be I qualify for the marital deduction, but I don't want it to be a grantor, but I want it to be a grantor trust as it pretty much automatically would be if it is for your spouse. If you and your spouse divorce, it's going to continue to be a grantor trust with respect to you because in 2017, section 682 of the code was basically taken out of the law. That used to say, if you've created a trust for your spouse, and it's a grantor trust and you get divorced, once you divorce, it'll no longer be a grantor trust with respect to you. It'll be a normal trust and income that's distributed to your ex-spouse will be taxed to him or her. That's no longer the case. So if you're going to do a so-called slat, you've got to make sure that you have something in there to stop making it a grantor trust, or at least have that possibility if you get divorced. 
you don't have to worry about that if it's for your significant other. So that we'll go into more detail about that and more detail about how to uh, try to get the benefit of the marital deduction, especially in light of the tremendously large exemption we have today, how long that will last, we don't know, um, even if you're not married by using your lifetime exemption. Jonathan, uh, isn't there isn't there a, um, and I hadn't thought of this until you just mentioned what you did, but for single people in particular, there may be a, a strong incentive to plan immediately to safeguard that exemption. Because if you're married, you know you can transfer under all the various proposals. Uh, you can transfer all your wealth without a deemed realization event and without an estate tax to your spouse. But if you're a single individual and you wanna benefit uh, a significant other, um, you need to take advantage of that exemption immediately because if these laws change and the exemptions drop to, to uh, three and a half million as per the Sanders plan, you're gonna be incredibly hampered as a single individual to benefit a significant other. And it may be that what you do is you, you, you transfer assets to an irrevocable trust and you provide uh, a, a close group of friends, a special power of appointment or a limited power of appointment to appoint who these assets go to. Because if you don't have a significant other or that significant other may change, you're not gonna get the assets where you want. So right now, it may be a, an absolutely more essential time for single people to plan than for married people. Marty, I think that's an excellent point, uh, keeping in mind that it is very, very difficult to get people who are single to take action. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I've been widowed or I'm divorced and I have children from my marriage, which is now ended by death or by divorce. And now I'm living with another person. And I, I don't know if we're gonna get married or not, but right now there's no thought we're gonna get married. How can I use my exemption and should I include that significant other that I may or may not marry in the future in my plans? And that's very, very important because do you give that person a special power of appointment? Keeping in mind that if that person becomes a beneficiary of a trust you've created, they may be able to so-called decant that trust to give that person a special power of appointment, which possibly she or he could exercise in favor of his or her own descendants or other loved ones and not yours. So this will be challenging, but Marty is absolutely correct. Now is the time to consider using your exemptions, but you need to put in people whom you trust to really be in control of things and perhaps even provide some general guidance as to what you're trying to accomplish. We, we'll well, also have, just, just very quickly, because I know we're out of time, but we also have to talk about self-settled trust, domestic asset protection trusts. Uh, you know, now is the time, especially for single people to do asset protection planning, because if, if some of these proposals are enacted, deemed realization, much reduced to million dollar gift exemption, et cetera, it's going to be much harder. So it's certainly something we should talk about as well. And domestic asset protection trust where, or a hybrid DAPT or a SPAT, where you can get access to your own assets is even more critical for a single individual because you can't use the indirect access through a spouse that married couples do. So planning takes on even more importance. That, that is absolutely correct. Again, I think that you will find that one of your bigger challenges, especially if your single client does not have descendants yet, is to get her, his or her to take action to really implement good estate planning. But everybody needs a will. 
everybody should at least consider a revocable trust. Everybody needs a healthcare proxy. Everybody needs a power of attorney. You need those things and probably a living will as well. In any event, this is just kind of a teaser of the detail we're going to go through. Uh, so you'll be able to better serve your single clients in the future. At least that is our goal. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.